So um, the title of the message today is The Gospel on Display in Marriage. And um, <clears throat> we'll hit on that at the end. But uh, we're gonna, this week we're going to talk about the role of the wife. And um, so since you know what's coming next week, the role of the husbands, I don't want, I don't want you men to, to think like, well, I'm, I'm going to be sick next week. Because uh, you need to come back uh, to hear that. Um, but I wanted to start off by taking us back to a 10,000 foot view kind of of where we are in our covenant series that we began in the fall uh, by just looking at our church covenant again with everyone. Uh, because, you know, um, some people are new and um, might not understand kind of where, where, where we are at in our, in our preaching series here. So, so what is a church covenant and why do we have one? Well, a uh, short answer uh, to what a church covenant is, is that it's a summary of how we agree to live out our relationship with the Lord and with each other in the context of our local church. Now, why do we have one? Because it's our desire that when someone decides that they want to take the step of joining with Liberty Hills Bible Church as a member, that that has a meaning and it's saying to each other that I care about my relationship with the Lord and I care about uh, my relationship with my fellow brothers and sisters that are here with me. And I'm going to strive to help my fellow brothers and sisters grow to be more like Christ as, uh, as my fellow brothers and sisters help me strive to be, uh, grow more like Christ. So our church covenant is really just a way that we express to each other that we're striving together for the sake of the gospel and we're committed to each other. So I'll start reading from the top here. <clears throat> this is our church covenant. In recognition of Christ's purpose for the church and having been saved by God's grace and baptized in obedience to Christ Jesus' command, we, the members of Liberty Hills Bible Church, do wholeheartedly and joyfully enter into the following covenant, to gather faithfully with one another for the teaching of biblical doctrine, for fellowship, for the observance of the Lord's Supper, and for faithful prayer, to love one another continually, to encourage and build up one another, to discern, develop, and deploy our spiritual gifts, to honor and respect those in spiritual leadership, to sustain ministry through financial support, to recognize Christian liberty, to reconcile differences, and to attempt to restore sinning brethren. Furthermore, we will strive for personal growth in our relationship with Christ, which is uh, what David spoke on last week, to pursue obedience regarding biblical family roles as parents bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as husbands loving our wives as Christ loved the church, as wives in submitting willingly and lovingly to the headship of our husbands, and as children both obeying and honoring our parents. We will strive to live Christ-like lives as we carry out our Lord's great commission by evangelizing and discipling within our spheres of influence. We covenant to do these things with the help of the Lord and for his glory. So even though we have the husbands before the wives in, in our covenant, we're going to go with the wives first just because that's kind of how it is in, in Ephesians 5 here. So, um, so we, mostly, um, we most likely have about five weeks left to finish what we've been calling our covenant series of messages. Um, we've kind of been going through each phrase and... Um, uh, kind of explaining biblically like where, the, where, where these come from. And um, the reason we choose to have statements in our covenant about the family and husband and wife relationships and 
parent-children relationships is because, especially in our time, it's critical that we understand what God says about these things. Because the reality is that um, in the broader culture and in the day in which we live, um, there's no shortage of voices out there that are trying to tell us um, what family is about. And sadly, the result of many of these voices and opinions from these voices and ideas um, has left families and marriages in the United States not in particularly good shape. Um, a question that a lot of people have often want an answer for is, what makes for a healthy marriage? Or what makes a marriage great? And of course, we're uh, all for those things, of course, but as followers of Christ, the question that we need to answer first is, what makes for a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting marriage? And then we trust that when our lives are focused on that question, answering that question, that as we go the distances, our marriages will thrive and flourish. So this morning, would you say um, that the state of your marriage on a scale of one to flourishing is that it's flourishing? Or would you say it could be better? Or even I need it to get better? Uh, or maybe you're saying I'm desperate for it to get better. Well, if that's your heart, then please stay engaged for the next few weeks as we learn together about the marriage relationship from the author of marriage. Now this morning, um, you can turn your Bibles to Ephesians 5, because that's where we're going to mostly be. And um, we're going to be looking at this passage where the Apostle Paul lays out the foundation of how a God-honoring marriage is built. And if a marriage is built on this foundation, it will be a healthy marriage, and it will be a great marriage. Um, now, I'm guessing that most of you guys, if you turn to Ephesians 5, you've you're got your finger on verse 22. And that's probably because if your Bible's like my Bible, it's got a paragraph heading there that says wives and husbands. Uh, but actually, we need to start reading with verse 18. So I'm going to throw you a curveball. So I'm going to start reading from verse 18 and read um, through verse... Um, well, through the end of the chapter. So just follow along with me. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound." 
and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that he respects her husband. In my understanding, here is what Paul is doing in this passage. In laying out for us a foundation of a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, joy-filled marriage, he does this, and he's going to show us three things that we're going to look at today. First, he shows us the power for marriage. Then he goes on to explain the priorities in marriage. And then finally, he's going to share the picture of marriage that God intended. So Paul makes the assumption that before he says anything about marriage, this is why we started in verse 18, there is something that is very important that we are going to need because it's the power or the engine, if you will, that drives a God-honoring marriage forward. It's going to be what empowers your marriage and strengthens your marriage to be all that God intended it to be. And that power is the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. That in order for your marriage to be what God desires and designed it to be, the Holy Spirit needs to be empowering you to live in a certain way. Now, another way of saying be filled with the Spirit is be under the control of the Holy Spirit or be moved along by the Holy Spirit. So don't think of it like filling a glass. I think for a lot of my Christian life, I would think in terms of be filled with the Spirit like filling a glass, but that's a static thing. That's stationary. You know, once the glass is filled, it's filled. Um, but you need to think of um, being kept filled with the Spirit as like adjusting a boat's sails to be catching the wind so that the wind is always filling the sails and directing the boat in the direction it needs to go. So being kept filled with the Spirit is yielding our lives which are the sails to the Holy Spirit to provide the power to direct our lives in God's ways. So he is saying, be moved along or carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, verses 19, 20, and 21 describe some of the effects of what a Spirit-filled person is doing. Um, but I want us to make, take a minute and focus just on verse 21, which says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, if we are spirit-filled, if we are revering Christ, if we are in awe of Christ, if we desire to honor and please him, then we will all be typically submissive people as a general characteristic, men and women. That is to say, not we're not a dominating person, we're not proud, we're not self-willed people. This person is not a my way or the highway kind of person who is spirit-filled. Um, this person is not the one always trying to dominate the room uh, of the environment that they find themselves in uh, with their own personal agendas and plans. But spirit-filled people are submissive by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word here in the original text for uh, be subject to or, or sub submit is hupatasso, and it's really a compound word. You got tasso, which means to arrange or to place in order, and hupo is under. So it was often used as a military term, meaning to place yourself under or to rank yourself under. Um, so you kind of get the idea of like, you know, in the military, there needed to be some order. You know, you have, you have um, colonels and generals and lieutenant colonels and... Um, so forth and so on, or else there'd be uh, chaos. Ephesians 5.21 is just one of many verses in the New Testament um, 
that really just establishes this principle that followers of Christ are to live lives of submission. <clears throat> uh, there's a lot of verses about um, uh, submission. Of course, our greatest example of this is the Lord Jesus himself in Philippians 2, where it says, um, though he was equal with God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Um, so as Philippians 2 points out, the soul of submission is humility. It is being unselfish. And also in Philippians 2, it talks about having no conceit, but with humility of mind, that we are to consider others as more important than ourselves, not looking out for your own interests, but the interests of others. So submitting to one another means that we are taking the posture of a servant and having the mindset of serving the other person for their good, um, no matter the cost to ourselves. So think of it as, as posturing yourself beneath the other person so that you're lifting them up for their good. That is the idea of submit yourselves to one another. And this way of living is produced by the Holy Spirit. So as a side note, even though the subject today is about the God-defined role of wives in the marriage relationship, for any of you women who desire to get married, the kind of man you should be looking for is one who is humble, a humble and selfless kind of man, a man who will lead with a submissive kind of leadership, not a domineering kind of leadership, a man who is not preoccupied with his own agenda and his own needs and his own expression and his own will and his own plans. A woman should be able to look at her husband and see one who would make any sacrifice for her well-being. And Eric will have much to say about that next week when he addresses the responsibilities of men in the marriage relationship. Another observation that I think that's implied in the passage is that when Paul is writing these things, he's not thinking about two needy, lonely individuals who are looking for fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning in a relationship. That's not what he's thinking about. He's assuming that his audience of married people or those who desire to be married someday have already answered life's big questions. And what do I mean by that? Well, that they know why they were created, that God created them with a purpose. Um, so they are not looking to find their meaning or their identity in marriage, but find their meaning and identity in God's having created them to bring him glory through their lives. They've already settled that question. Okay, they've already settled what their purpose is. They know that satisfaction in life is ultimately found in God, that their joy cannot be ultimately fulfilled by another person. It doesn't matter how great that person might be. They've, they've settled that. So in essence, Paul is saying, you've settled this. You've settled where you find your identity. You've settled where your joy comes from. But you need to know this one thing, that you cannot do what your priority is in marriage Namely, to operate in submission to another person unless you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the reason why Paul needs to lay this foundation is because he understands, and what we need to understand, is that self-centeredness is the primary cancer that eats away at the root cause of a healthy marriage. And selfishness, obviously, Everyone could attest to this probably who's married or any relationship is really enemy number one. And if left unchecked, my self-centeredness will kill my marriage 
And if left unchecked, your self-centeredness will kill your marriage. Um, I know in the past, um, I've encouraged um, single people to live with roommates uh, before getting married, just so their selfishness can be tested by living with other people. Because in reality, I think a lot of people don't realize how selfish they are until they get married. Um, I fortunately lived in a house with um, uh, three other guys. So there was four of us living in a house for over a year before I got married. And it was just a really good opportunity for um, a lot of things to come up that tested my selfishness. I mean, you know, who's going to take out the trash? Who's going to do the dishes? Why are the dishes left in the sink? How high are they going to get before someone decides to wash them? You know, um, whose turn is it to use the washer and dryer? And um, and all kinds of things that just, you know, when you're having a relationship, you know, together, um, who is going to get underneath the other person and lift up the other person's needs? And uh, so that was, that was a great experience to prepare me for marriage. And of course, in marriage, it's a lot closer than, you know, living with three other guys in a, in a house where you still have a lot of opportunity to, to do your own thing. But um, to sum up, it is this submissive attitude, basically in verse 21, that makes a marriage successful. Now, I don't have any question about the fact that I'm supposed to be the head of Lisa in our marriage relationship, and she doesn't have any restraints placed upon her by that understanding that in and of itself are abusive or harsh, because I understand that while I have authority given to me from God to be the head, I am also commanded to be submissive to her in every area of her needs. Do I always achieve my part? You bet I do. Um, no, I, I, no, I don't. You can ask her. But, but I desire to achieve my part. Um, so now Paul is going to move from the power for marriage and begin speaking about the priorities in marriage. Now that we've established that the engine that drives a marriage forward is this spirit-empowered ability to lay down your life and to submit yourself to one another, let's talk about priorities. And again, this week, the focus will be on the wives. So we've established that there is a mutual submission to one another, but what Paul is about to explain is that this submission in the marriage relationship, it takes on different forms. It takes on different displays, different ways of how we're serving each other. Now, in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, Paul is referencing Genesis 2.24 from the creation story. And so we want to take our cues on God's purpose and design for marriage from God's original creation of man and woman. How did God design them to operate and flourish? Well, <clears throat> you don't need to turn there. I'll just read it. But in Genesis 1.26, it says about the man and woman that, quote, they would have dominion over things. But to use a more familiar word um, than dominion, the New Living says they, would, they will reign over things, okay? We might be more familiar with the term reigning. Um, and I want to emphasize the word, I kind of didn't really, I said it too fast, but it says they will reign, they. God's desire for marriage is not a king and a servant, and it's not a queen and a slave. Um, it's a king and a queen ruling and reigning together. 
a co-regency that brings order to creation. God's plan was that they would be ruling and reigning in harmony under one king, the king of kings. So with that in mind, we need to remember how it happened. God created man first, and then after he made man, God recognized that things were not perfect and complete, so he created woman. To be specific, in Genesis 2.18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, I think, you know, what kind of rubs people wrong in, in, in our modern-day culture is that uh, when you hear the word helper in our day, it kind of can sound like demeaning or, or inferior. Um, like, you know, when I used to take my kids to Home Depot or something, when I was doing a house project, and someone would say, hey, I see that you have your helper, your little helper with you. And I'd, you know, pat my kids on the head and say, yeah, I got my little helper with me. And, um, you know, if I did that with Lisa, you know, hey, I got my, she's my little helper, you know, that wouldn't go over very well. Um, because she is not my little helper. And that is not what that language in the original text has in mind at all. We, we use the word helper in this day and age like, I don't really need you to help me to do this, but if you want to help, you can, you can tag along. Um, but that's not at all what's in, what's in play here with this word. The word helper in Genesis 2 is the Hebrew word ezer, and it is primarily used throughout the Old Testament actually of God, okay? That God is the helper. God delivered the people. Um, he comes to the sovereign aid of his people. He is the protector of his people. Sometimes it's used in that way. He is the fortifier of his people. Sometimes it's used of sending reinforcements into battle. So, I mean, it's actually like a powerful thing, this, this, this helper. Um, so God is using this word to indicate something that is lacking in the man's life, but absolutely essential uh, to be in the man's life. But not only is she the helper, the woman is called a suitable helper. And that word means one like him, but yet like opposite of him in the sense that the two together make a perfect fit. So it's like God is saying to the man, you need a helper. You need somebody to come to your aid. You need someone to come alongside you, to support you, to fortify you, to be a source of protection and strength and encouragement to you but you need somebody who fits perfectly with you. So I'll create woman. So that, that is, a, that is a, a, a powerful calling for, for the helper. So coming back to verses 22 through 24, right after Paul talks about submitting to one another, he expounds upon how this looks in a marriage relationship. In a nutshell, wives are submitting to the headship or the God-ordained leadership of the husband and next week, Eric will expound upon how the husbands loving their wives like Christ loved the church really is an act of submission in, in itself to the needs of the wife. This has nothing to do with inferiority. In fact, according to Paul in Galatians 3.28, he established that there is no inferiority among believers between men and women. God is simply creating in the marriage relationship divinely established categories of responsibility. As Eric was, was saying in the prayer, um, 
equal value but distinct roles. Some observations just here from the passage. It says, submit to your own husbands, not to every man, not to any man, but to your own husbands. And then the manner in which the wife is to be submissive to the husband is as to the Lord and as the church submits to Christ. So remember that we are talking about wives submitting out of power that has been given to you by the Holy Spirit to come alongside your husband, to encourage, to strengthen, to support, to fortify your marriage. And that means that you are doing it willingly and joyfully. Jesus desires that the church submit to him willingly and joyfully, not begrudgingly like, well, I don't want to, but I I will because I have to. And the role that God has given the wife in submitting is one, think of it like this way, it's pouring life into the marriage, pouring strength into the marriage, fortifying, I like that word, fortifying the marriage. You speak life into your husband's leadership. And um, this is just not, this is not an overstatement at all. It's probably can't be stated um, strong enough, but if I didn't have Lisa doing this, what I just shared for me the last 34 years, I have no clue where I'd be today. And I for sure would not be standing up here today and don't even know if we'd be in a church building right now. Um, So uh, I realize that some of you might be thinking, some of you women, I would speak life into my husband's leadership if there was anything to speak life into. Um, Or you might think if there was anything to respect, I would respect them. But verse 22 doesn't say if they check all of these boxes, then they are worthy of submission and respect. You know, we can't miss the phrase, as to the Lord. Um, We don't submit because he is basically Jesus, but you submit because one, that is God's will for you. Number two, you see your husband as the delegated head by Christ himself. Number three, you submit because you have been shown grace. And so in that grace, in the power of the spirit, you submit maybe more times than you care to, even when he doesn't deserve it. And number four, it reveals the gospel to the world. And I'll share about that in a few moments. So submission is not passive, but it involves attitude and actions of willingly and lovingly respecting and yielding to the leadership of another. Um, I'll say that again. So submission is not passive, but it involves the attitude and actions of willingly and lovingly respecting and yielding to the leadership of another. Now, uh, we read from the passage of 1 Peter 3 during the scripture reading. And um, what comes right before that is 1 Peter 2. Talks about um, servants and slaves and masters. It just talks about serving when there's unjustness going on. And then it, it, it goes into 1 Peter 3 um, about difficult situations in, in the marriage. And um, uh, 1 Peter 2, I, I've, I've leaned on that verse, that, that passage many times when I felt like I was suffering in an unjust situation, um, whether it be 
bad bosses at work or just anything going on in life that you know you felt like was unjust but it it's an encouraging passage because it shows what Jesus did because he had the ultimate unjustness done to him so whenever you feel like you are suffering in an unjust situation go read the end of 1 Peter 2 and all of 1 Peter 3 God completely knows and understands that in this world, Christian husbands will not be perfect. He understands that there will be marriages where a believing wife may be married to an unbelieving husband, and he addresses these things. Now, on that note, I just want to say a couple things about what submission does not mean. Uh, Two things here. One, submission does not mean that you must always agree with the opinions of your husband or put the will of the husband before the will of Christ. For example, <clears throat> if someone was married to a husband and, it, and, and, and that husband came to the wife and said, I, I want you to renounce your faith and become a follower of another God, that, that's, a no, that's a no-go. Um, or if a husband is wanting to coerce the wife into sin, that, that's a no-go as well. Uh, in my understanding, as to the Lord comes before something like this. And I know there is that phrase also in this passage that says, submit in everything to their husbands. But what proceeds that is, as the church submits to Christ. Well, Christ does not ask the church to do wickedness or something contrary to the faith. But even in situations like this, um, which you know these situations happen in, in, in life, um, a spouse can still maintain a respectful attitude in addressing the husband as to why she cannot follow that. The second thing that submission does not mean is it does not mean avoiding the effort to influence or change the husband. Peter directly addresses this uh, in 1 Peter 3 when he uses the phrase that they may be one. So uh, this wife there could, is trying to win her husband. So there's an effort going on to win him. So Peter fully expected this wife through her behavior to intentionally influence her husband to change. Again, you know, those, that situation, First Peter 3, is <clears throat> extremely difficult situation. Um, and uh, the church, or, uh, pastors, um, People need to rally around, you know, uh, uh, church members that are in those situations to give them support and and love and encouragement. Um, so my story is nothing even close to something like that. But but I can personally testify that um, even you know when when I am a rotten husband, um, uh, not deserving of kindness or anything good. I know that there have been times that Lisa's actions towards me because of her good behavior have changed the dynamics of our relationship and softened my hard-heartedness and it's changed me. So like what Peter's talking about, it, it, there's something to that. It, it's, it's a miracle of what he's really talking about. And in my opinion, just from my experience, I think if wives engage in respectful dialogue and discussion, whether it be over decisions or something like that, the husband 
will more likely than not respond with love and consideration for his wife when, when making a decision. Um, like I said, what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 3 is a miracle. And um, um, I'm trying to think of the... Um, who's, what's the name of that? There was a guy, um, Chicago Times reporter, and he became a Christian. His wife became a Christian first. Um, the case for Christ, Lee Strobel. Yeah, if you, um, you know, I think there's a, they made a movie out of it, but um, it's a powerful testimony of how um, this guy was a complete atheist and rejected Christ, I mean, in, in, a, in a vehement way. And his wife uh, became a believer in Christ. And just from modeling what First Peter 3 asks of the woman, um, she won him over and, and he became a Christian and, and is, is a very powerful voice um, for the Lord now. Um, so Peter's talking about God bringing about something that is God honoring in the midst of something going on that is not God honoring. And I think that is why Peter closes his section in 1 Peter 3 with this phrase after talking about Sarah. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You know, why does he say that? Because, because we all desire to be safe, right? Um, men and women. But um, I'm talking specifically in the women's relationship here in the, in the marriage. We all desire to be safe. And that can lead to a wife wanting to take control of a situation that she sees doesn't feel safe in because it can be hard to feel safe when you are not in control. Um, this is probably a lame example, but you know, if I'm driving excessively fast and I'm behind the wheel, I feel safe. But if I'm the passenger and someone else is driving excessively fast, I do not feel safe. And normally I find myself praying, you know, God, please don't let us wreck. Um, and, uh, so I'm leaning on God for my safety. Um, so what is opposing that fear? It, it's faith. You know, I'm putting my faith in God in those moments. And it takes faith to submit to the leadership of an imperfect person, especially from our perspective when we think we are being led in the wrong direction or um, you know, it's out of our control and we don't really know, we, there could be fear of the unknown. So there needs to be faith in God who has delegated this person to, to be the, the leader. Um, if you think about Sarah and Abraham, um, God, you know, talks about Sarah's faith in a positive way. And uh, he, um, if Abraham was like, hey, Sarah, pack up your things. We're going on a journey. And Sarah's like, oh, where? Abraham's like, I don't know, but we're leaving tomorrow. You know, I mean, I think that like for any woman in this room, you would just think you're out of your mind, you know, uh, but um, that would take extreme faith in God to go, I don't know what he's doing, but okay, I'm packing my bags and I guess we're going to go, but we don't even know where we're going. 
So at the beginning, I said that we would see three things in this passage. First was the power for marriage. The second was the priorities in marriage. And now last, but most definitely not least, we will see the picture of marriage. And this actually is the most important because I think this should give motivation for why the women should embrace the role that God has designed and men should embrace the role that God has designed. Um, I'm just going to read verse 31 and 32 again. 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul says this mystery is profound. Now, when the New Testament uses the word mystery, it means something that has been kept secret for a long time, but is now being revealed. <clears throat> and that word profound in the Greek is the word megas, M-E-G-A-S, which is where we like get the word mega because it means big or great. So in essence, Paul is saying this is a mega secret. Okay, uh, this mystery is a mega secret. What's the big secret, Paul? Well, um, if you read that fast, you kind of like skip over, but it says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The it Paul is referring to is verse 31, meaning this marriage that God established in Genesis, that's the it. Paul is saying, when God said that back in Genesis, he was saying, I created marriage to picture or model Christ and the church before there even was any revelation of Christ and before there was any revelation of the church. Because as far back as the creation, God already had in view that he would redeem a people for himself and he made marriage the picture of that before it was even revealed to the world. Um, that is just mind-blowing. Now, what God did when he created marriage is that he created an institution, um, a bond, a covenant, through which he was going to put on display in every single home the message of the gospel. And um, it goes like this. Jesus lays down his life for the church. Husbands lay down their lives for their wives. The church submits to Jesus. Wives submit to their husbands. So now a watching world sees you going through life and living a marriage like this, and they go, what is that? Where did that come from? Oh, that's the gospel. Jesus died for people while we were still sinners. He died for us, and we joyfully follow him and submit under his leadership. It's a picture of what God did in redeeming his people. That's marriage. God's design is that this is the picture that your marriage is supposed to display that my marriage is supposed to display. And that's a very high calling to show the world how great that glorious mystery is. But once again, it's impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, as we think about what Paul has written to us, the foundation that has been laid for us in God's word, the calling on every one of our lives is to say, God, how will am I displaying your glorious gospel <clears throat> through my marriage? And if the answer is not so good, then it's not 
condemnation and guilt and shame, but it should be a response of desperation for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill you and empower you to live out the calling that God has given you. Let's close in prayer. Father, um, this is a high calling, Lord, that you um, instituted just, and, and, and it is mind-blowing, God, that you, to think that when we just think of marriage, and every marriage is a, was meant to be a picture of the gospel, God, um, Lord, I, 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 as I was putting this together, I was just thinking of like Dave and Pam, who've probably been married the longest of anyone in here, and um, how that is display of the gospel, Lord. Just and, and it, it's it, it just reminds us of why you hate divorce. There's so many implications of of how you created marriage to be a display of the gospel and how that lines up with so many other things you talk about when it comes to marriage. (laughs) Um, So many other implications. And God, we do need your Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us. And I pray that you would do that. Fill the women here. Fill the men here, God. Um, It's just, it's a tall order, God. It's um, to to live in this way, to to, um, submit to our husbands as to the Lord, to as Christ, uh, as the church does to Christ, to, to, as we will learn next week, to love our wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, these are, these are virtually impossible commands that um, we cannot do um, in our own flesh. And God, I just pray that you would um, um, give us grace and know that there is truth, that your mercy is more and your, your mercy is able to, I pray that you'd be merciful to us, Lord. And Thank you for the grace that you have given um, in um, uh, pray that you'd give us even more grace, God, to, to be, um, to display your gospel through marriages in this church, um, to this community, to uh, friends, family, neighbors around us, God, in the coming days. In Jesus' name, amen.